This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Lost and Found, and this week, seafoods. La mer qu'on voit danser le long. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind's song and the white sails shaking. And a grey mist on the sea's face and a grey dawn breaking. I live by the ocean. Dan Hunter is the chef and owner of, of Bray in Biragara. Coastal Victoria. Dan, if we put pull that word apart, seafood, seafood, what as a chef is conjured for you with, with that word? I mean, lots of possibilities to be honest, I guess. Traditionally, we're looking at fish and, and all that goes with that, the extended extended sort of species of the ocean in terms of, you know, shellfish and mollusks, cephalopods, those types of things. Mm. Um but I guess in a greater sense, I mean, there's a whole world of exploration available uh, in the ocean. And, and for us, in more recent years, let's say the last decade, certainly had a stronger interest in not just the, the animal species or, you know, fish species of the ocean, but also the plant species of the ocean. So, you know, sea lettuces and different types of kelps and and things, wakamis, things that, are, that are, have great culinary value that probably aren't being considered as much as they should be in Australia, yes. and certainly, certainly, we given the sort of colder, colder ocean that we have in the Southern Ocean, and 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 the you know sort of kelp growth that we have, we have a, a real opportunity to sort of explore that and and to utilise those species of plants, and uh, and certainly we've been sort of considering those things in the last in the last sort of half a dozen years. Now, I mean that as you say, those things are under considered. No, I guess that's particularly for post-colonial eaters in this country. Mm, yeah. But for Indigenous Australians, it's part of a very broad palette of, of coastal foods. Bruce Pascoe's dark emu—that had a bit of an impact on you. Look, I think it. I mean, I think it's a type of writing and information that surely had an impact on anyone who's bothered to read it. Certainly, from a from the perspective of a cook and a restaurant owner and someone who is, I guess, quite implanted in a in a regional community, um, any any opportunity to expose indigenous foods of our region and I guess greater Australia, to be honest. Mm. But for us, we tend to we tend to focus a bit bit closer to home. But any any sort of any species of of anything which is is true to our climate, true to, you know, our place, it's what distinguishes the world's great cuisines. And if we don't make a, an effort to, I guess, to utilise these ingredients, and that's not to say that we utilise them in the same manner in which they were pre-colonial times, because sure. obviously, like everything, we've evolved, but in a way that signifies that we have an understanding of them, we have an appreciation of them, we have a respect of them and that we're proud of them. And that gives gives us a cuisine to be proud of and it gives us a cuisine that can be internationally recognised. It's accessing the, the culinary tradition of this place and, and, and we, we happily enjoy an imported culinary tradition, but here's one at our fingertips, uh, which is equally you know capable of exploration. Look, I think when when we talk about cuisine we we actually probably using the wrong word and we're talking about place you know we're talking about you know what what puts you in a in a place and mm. 
I mean, Australians are, are great travellers and we all like to talk about trips that we've had and, and foods that we've eaten, but we don't travel to Japan to eat Italian food and we don't travel to Italy to eat French food, even though they're very close to each other. But when people come to Australia, they ask the question, what's Australian food, you know? And because we are such a multicultural society... And it's one Italian and French. <laughs> you, know, you know, because we are that society, of course, through all of the migrations, we have all the endless possibilities of food combinations and, I guess, an appreciation of the importation of those foods. But within the, all of that, um, we also have a highly underutilised sort of palette of Indigenous ingredients that uh, should be incorporated. And it is becoming so. Mm. But once you start to see your Anglo parents cooking it, that's when you know it's inside culture, you know. As, as, as a chef, as, as a, a, a coastal person, when, when you clamber down from Birragara to, the, to the, the, that cold Bass Strait shore... <laughs> How do you how, how do you see that as an area of possibility? What what are you looking for in those, in 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 that 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 dune, those rock pools, that beach? Yeah, I spend a lot of time down in Skeens Creek and Apollo Bay actually, and it's only you know it's sort of we're on Cape Otway Road, so we're on the what the locals would say the the main road to Apollo Bay and what the tourists would consider the back road. You know, so it's only it's only for us. It's we're sort of twenty minutes to Lawn and, and forty minutes to Skeenies, and so we've got the best of both worlds in that regard. And I guess you know, Lawn and Apollo Bay are two of the most beautiful towns in Victoria in terms of coastal towns. And you know, the type of food that we cook at Bray, and the type of messages I try to get through to our guests is food's not just necessarily what you put in your palate, but it's all the stuff that goes with it. So it's the feelings, the aromas the memories, all of those things that make a, a sort of great meal at a, at a restaurant of this nature. So we're not just looking what's the best fish in the, in the bay, we're sort of looking at what does it smell like, what's the look of it, what's the aesthetic of, of a cold coastal ocean in the middle of winter in Victoria and trying to bring some of those broader, con, you know, broader topics to, to the plate and to mm. the table. So, you know, we, if we do a dish of, of shellfish or of clams or mollusk or, or oyster or something like that, we don't try and just present the oyster. We try and present all of the things that go around it. So presenting the seaweeds, presenting the rocks that it may live amongst, right. you know, distillation of the ocean to try and get that that sensation of a freezing ocean when it's at its most powerful and most beautiful in this part of the world. Which is the extraordinary thing about so much seafood that almost unlike any other kind of food, it carries that sense of place with it. Yeah, I think... Look, I think as consumers in Australia, we're probably, you know, we all understand that tomatoes come in, you know, well, we say summer. They're probably best in Victorian, to be honest, late summer, early autumn. But, you know, we, we understand, we, we look at the ingredients and we know that it signifies parts of the year. But do we understand as as consumers the seafood or the fish migration in each year and when things are at their best, you know? And I think maybe that's a bit of a a bit of a, not a fault, but something that we could certainly improve our understanding. And I guess in that regard, we require our fishers and our ocean authorities to make that stuff more more available and more clear. And, and I guess as consumers to not always walk into the, the fish and chip shop and ask for the same fish all year round or, or you go out for lunch every Friday and just demand snapper because you live in Melbourne and you heard that comes out of the bay, you know, like so... You know, I think there's lots of lots of fish that we don't utilise, lots of uh, lots of things that people use the expression fishy, you know, and I guess it comes from the ocean where you'd hope it would be, you know, and <laughs> I guess certainly certainly some of our, our richer fish 
deeper coloured fish, oiler fish are certainly underutilised in typical Western Australian, you know, Australian cuisines. I talk about Anglo sort of backgrounds here, um, but certainly they're they're some of our best tasting fish, and they're probably still today some of our more you know, cheaper fish because they're not, you know, the demand's not huge for them. But if we don't increase demand, what's the point of the fishes going out for them as well? You know, so mm. there's those types of fish. I mean, we, we're trying to expand a little bit more what we use here based on that, and and we've found we buy a lot of. Southern Rock Lobster out of the co-op in Apollo Bay and have a good relationship with the guys down there. And, um, you know, I, I guess there's bycatch opportunities and, and bycatch shouldn't mean something negative. It's not a byproduct. It's just something that's available on the quota that they currently have whilst they're fishing for for the craze. It might be an absolute gem. It's an absolute gem and often is. And, and often um, they're in extreme quality because they're coming on cray boats that are only going out for the day and they're – often as well caught in the pots with the cray so they haven't you know haven't struggled or fought or another any of those things that can deem the the flesh a little bit you know lower quality so yeah i mean there's a lots of there's lots of stuff around that's um of really great quality out of that part of the world that probably we should be eating a bit more of dan hunter thanks so much my pleasure thanks a lot colin bissett the fish knife is the epitome of gentility With a sinuously shaped blade, the end is just pointy enough to pick small bones from a cooked fish, and the flat blade is useful for sliding between the flesh and skin. The fish knife first appeared in the first half of the 19th century in Britain. Thanks to thriving industry and the wealth generated by an expanding empire, the rising middle classes aspired to a more gentrified way of dining. From the 1850s, dinners were served à la russe, which meant as separate courses, as opposed to the previous practice of putting all dishes on the table at the same time. This led to the introduction of a variety of implements to help distinguish the serving and eating of everything from oysters to elaborate puddings, making negotiating a dinner a nightmare for those lacking knowledge of table etiquette. A fish knife was an essential component for the fish course. Made from either plated or solid silver, because ordinary metal was believed to blacken when coming into contact with fish, for those who could afford them, this was a moment to show to the world that they could afford to dine in the finest fashion, with ever more fanciful shapes, some engraved with fish scales, a maritime theme was de rigueur. By the end of the First World War, they fell from fashion, at least for the upper classes, who had always found them rather vulgar and preferred to use two forks to fillet a fish. They quickly became an object of ridicule as the century progressed. However, the invention of stainless steel in the 1920s meant that they could be manufactured cheaply, and thus anyone who aspired to a posh kind of gentility would be in possession of a set. The fish knife was, in short, an object of fussy design, solving a problem that was not truly present. But it remains a throwback to an interesting time when how one ate was more important than what one ate. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied and all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume 
The seagulls crying. Out on the sea, we'd be Zoe Britton is an environmental anthropologist at Deakin University. Zoe, seaweed, so so hot right now. Yeah, it most definitely is. And I think that's sort of where my research came into the picture. So there's a big building of industry in Australia around wanting to commercially harvest seaweed. Uh, but the problem is most of the species or a big chunk of them are endemic. Only ah, found here. Okay. Well, I mean, tell us what species are we talking about here? So luckily down south where we are, we've got some of the richest um, biodiversity of anywhere in the world, which is pretty exciting. But because they are endemic, we don't really know what species to use. We can't use the same species that are used in North America or in Japan and Korea. And there was a lot of research sort of into blind trials of trying different ones. And then we sort of had the thought, well... Maybe we could just ask. Because <laughs> there were people here for a bit, yeah. as I recall it, uh, 60 or 70,000 years, quite possibly eating seaweed. Yeah, and we found out, so, so far I've spent a year recording and collaborating with elders um, on their oral histories, mm-hmm. and I've only spoke to a few elders so far from a few different mobs down south, but we've already found over 20 different species that we used and a use in pretty much you name it, and they'd use it for something. They'd eat it, they'd use it in medicine, in um, textiles, in ropes, in fishing, pretty much anything you can imagine. Because as you say, there is so much of it out there, it is hard to imagine that it was just ignored by the Aboriginal people in this place. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also why it's starting to get or raise its popularity here in Australia, Mm -hmm. because whitefellas are starting to understand the health benefits of it. So it's so good for you. There's so many properties, really good for your health. And of course, if you're a coastal people living here for tens of thousands of years, you're not going to ignore an easily accessible plant that's got all these health benefits, are you? How's it faring in, in modern times? We, we know that uh, lots of our ocean is being overfished. We know that there are you know, issues around uh, diversity in, in coastal Australia. Seaweed, is that how's that faring? Yeah, so some of you might have heard there's been some concerns for the kelp forests, the big large kelps between Victoria and Tasmania. And I know that like the rest of the ocean with issues like warming Mm. um, and erosion of coastal areas, whether that be seagrasses or mangroves and that flowing out into the intertidal zone where the seaweeds live. Um, But luckily down south, we're actually still got well, this Great Southern Reef is absolutely huge. It has enormous amounts of biodiversity. But unfortunately, compared to um, another great reef up north, it doesn't get quite as much attention. <laughs> it's almost as beautiful. Oh, it is. It's, if not more beautiful, but it's just a tad colder. So that tends to... That takes the, takes yeah. the gloss off. It does. I mean, this is it's such a resource as we, you know, we worry about food security. We worry about what we can grow in this place to feed populations and, and here's something on our on our doorstep which is such a solution. Yeah, exactly. And there's been amazing research being done at the moment um, in the wider team I'm a part of, the Deakin um, Seaweed Lab, into even possibilities of using it as um, feed for livestock. You can use it um, as carbon sequestration. There's a whole range of other things you can use it other than just eating it and just for food security. So it's potentially 
you know, a solution to a lot of challenges we're facing. But the reason my research is important is that there are a lot of ways you can use it in not quite the right way. And the other okay. part of my research was looking at an analysis of the way industry has used traditional knowledge. And unfortunately, that showed that despite a lot of well-meaning um, industries wanting to use it and get involved with the communities, it was actually detrimental to those communities in the long run. As you say, it doesn't hurt to ask. Exactly. It doesn't hurt to, I think, doesn't hurt to ask. And the more important one, doesn't hurt to listen once they answer. Zoe, thank you. No worries. Zoe Britton, environmental anthropologist. Bruce Pascoe is an Australian Indigenous writer, author of Dark Emu. Bruce, I'm, in, I'm intrigued around the concept of country where land meets the sea. How does that work between the two? Well, I uh, live on the Wallagra River and the entrance at Mallacoota is closed at the moment, so the, the river's rising and you can actually see the, all the wetlands working. I've got water birds calling at night at the moment that I've n- never heard before. I don't know what they are and I know the bush. I mm. I know my birds and I don't know who these people are, you know, who's calling. That's a pretty exciting thing. It is. And it's all because of water across those little marshy lands. And they're the places where I'm cropping samphire and warrigal greens and stuff like that. And I got rid of all the cows off that property in May and um, I've just been watching the land recover. And I didn't think I had any warrigal greens and then I got rid of the cows. Within weeks, I had warrigal greens. So the cows had been cropping it and, and favouring it to the point of making sure there was no leaf left. So this is a really dynamic country, mm. and hoofed animals probably aren't the best thing to have on it. Which is one of the good things around the coast, I guess, is that despite the fact that we fish and pick and, and have done pretty poor things to the, mm. the coastline of this place... At least it's not grazed. At least it's not totally reshaped. Yeah, there's been some incredible transformations, but basically the country is true to its own character and wants to recover. We really have to look after the ocean, and we're not. Last year I heard a report that 30% of reef fish had disappeared in Australian reef conditions in 10 years. What's our sea going to look like? We've Mm. lost 30%. We'd probably hardly notice that, but when we lose 60%, we're going to notice that. Um, and that's the sort of thing that makes a grandfather shake in his boots because he thinks, when I was a boy of eight or nine, I was catching butterfish at Mornington. My grandson will have no chance of doing that. So that's the sort of thing that we've got to think of and say, no, kids have got to have the chance to have a good life. And you know, catching fish is not the essence of a good life, but it's part of a good life. And if if we've eradicated that opportunity, we've really done harm to our children and our grandchildren. We've got to look after it. And do. once again, the sea wants to recover. Uh, we had a spawning of prawn last year on, that, on those rivers. Now, those rivers are kind of chemical freeze you're going to get in Victoria, mm. um, but you couldn't see the bottom of the river for the small prawns. You know, that's a really good indication that the country wants to recover. But... If we start pumping you know, superphosphate residues and chemical residues into the river, that's what knocks stuff. That's what kills stuff, you know. Using 
um, Roundup and things like that. It's just not a good idea. You know, the other first world countries have banned them. You know, what's mm. Australia doing? I mean, it's just the thing about the sea too. Is you, you, if it is not your country, and if you don't have that deep understanding of how that's working, you look out upon it, and it's a, mm. it's, it's it's almost an alien place, but it's one which which keeps its secrets well hidden. You yeah. you don't realise yeah. how much it's deteriorated, how few yeah. things are there because it just looks like water. Well, uh, around Melbourne, uh, years ago, when all the swamps were there, uh, there were magpie geese in Victoria. And people were selling them as a brace in the Footscray market, a brace of magpie geese, um, a brace of Cape Barren geese. Um, my dad was buying uh, a crayfish for a shilling and we were undervaluing these things, overfishing them, over, over, over killing the birds. And, uh, and now at Crayfish Bay at a Cape Otway where I used to live, the old people would say the bottom of crayfish bay would be red with the backs of crayfish <laughs> in the breeding season, and it doesn't happen anymore. There's still a commercial crayfish industry down there, but it's fishing an incredibly reduced number of crayfish, and it's not sustainable. What's Cook's cabbage? Oh, it's Warrigal Greens. <laughs> Captain Cook's lettuce, Cook's cabbage, New Zealand lettuce. It's got a dozen names, um, but it's Warrigal Greens, and... It's a favourite in restaurants. It, it is the kind of vegetable Australians should be growing because mm. I grew it in a, a locked yard, but because I've been so busy, I haven't been able to get in there. By the time I came back, having it protected from birds and rodents and things like that, I couldn't open the door to get into the <laughs> garden because the Warrigal Greens had taken over. This is a thing you can grow in your backyard and you'll eat it every day, one way or another. You can eat it as pesto, steamed greens, you know, casserole, you know, it's, it'll just be one of the favourite vegetables of Australia when we get used to using it. If there's a wonder food, this is it's, it. It's a, there's your superfood. Mm. Blood cockle, would you call that a superfood? I do, because... Um, they have their fans. Yeah. People, <laughs> um, you know, it's like a lot of things. Um, you've got to know how to cook them. And uh, if you cook abalone the wrong way, it tastes like boot leather and with the same texture. Mm. So you've just got to learn the cooking of them. And I'm very protective of blood muscle because people have the reaction to them because they're tough and watery. But it, if you don't cook, if you don't overcook them, if you leave the essence of the sea in the shell and eat the blood muscle, then it's, it's a weird delicacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing about Aboriginal people in this place, that, 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 that role of water. 80% of Australian Aboriginal diet was vegetables. And, you know... The, the British wanted to see the arms, the weapons of these people. So they concentrated on the spear and the boomerang mm. without realising that they were rarely used. You know, people would get a duck here and there and a kangaroo here and there. But mainly it was uh, scalefish and eels and vegetables. So the, the role of the women's digging stick was never investigated. And the role of women in general wasn't investigated because all the anthropologists were men. It's a pretty superfood diet you got there. Well, that's why they were all six foot two and had terrific teeth, those old people, you know, towered up. Bruce, thank you so much. <laughs> Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy lights, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and quiet sleep 
and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. You've been listening to Lost and Found, a Blueprint for Living production this week on Seafoods. You heard Dan Hunter, chef and owner of Bray, Bruce Pascoe, Australian Indigenous writer, author of Dark Emu, Zoe Britton, environmental anthropologist at Deakin University, Colin Bissett, writer, design expert, and the poem Sea Fever, read by the poet... John Macefield. Uh, If you want more thinking fishy content, fishing sustainability to be precise, check out the latest episode of Shooting the Past with Claire Wright. We'll put a link up on the RN website. Producers were Mira Adley-Gillies and Sylvie Van Wall. Technical production by Matthew Sigley. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.